Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Christina Schaaf. Christina, Prof, it's wonderful to see you. We've been having a little gossip about our pussycats yes. in the last 10 minutes <laughs> and our children. But now it's onto the serious stuff. Ready? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, Prof, uh, Prof, Christina, the first thing I wanted to ask you was to inquire what's dynamizing you, occupying you, preoccupying you, worrying you, interesting you these days. Um, I just finished a research project on digital feminism, um, and I can talk about this a little more, but I think I'm still interested in digital culture and the ways in which this intersects with the kind of selves we form and perform when we are online and offline as well, of course, and how this ties into inequalities and hierarchies of race, gender and class. And the ways in which it's lived out and experienced by us all individuals as we go online and experience these worlds of platforms. Having said that, I always feel like an imposter when talking about digital culture. <laughs> I should say that uh, because uh, I, well, I have a background in gender studies and then did quite a lot of research on cultural work, specifically looking at the classical music profession. So the focus on digital culture is newer and really comes through feminism. Um, and I think I have something to add to that through the focus on subjectivity. But yeah, don't ask me about different theories of platform capitalism, please, because I wouldn't be able to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, that's an incitement, isn't it? Don't ask me about... Yes, <laughs> <laughs> You can ask me, but don't expect a well-read or, you know, well-informed answer on that one. I love it. Um, Prof, if I go back, back, back in time, 30 years, when email started to be something that lots of people in universities and companies and governments used, I remember one of the first fabulations was she-mail. And the idea of she-male was not something transgendered. She-male was the notion of a certain liberation for women that could come from forming a different identity in the digital world. And I thought of this, and I'm sure lots of feminist scholars did too, in terms of Zim Georg Simmel, forgive my pronunciation, and his notions of the woman in the city that Elizabeth mm -hmm. Wilson and others have picked up, that at some level through the use of money and anonymity and sometimes through sex work, women could slip the bonds of patriarchy from the villages whence they'd come, right? The, you know, the local pastor, their own fathers, their mothers, the nobility of everybody in a village setting, that they could come to the city and be someone, something different, even if they were working class and had very few options other than selling sex. Do you know what I mean? That there was this yeah. notion of... I can be whatever I want. And Zimmel, to me, explained a lot about that, just as he explains a lot about things like money and whatnot mm -hmm. and, and credit cards and so on. But I wondered about that history, that, that trajectory, because it feels as though those early utopic notions of female identity have been displaced by the horror of all the digital sexual attacks that we get, revenge pornography being one. 
So it's a long-winded question, but I'm wondering if you could reflect on that sort of genealogy that I've just constructed. Is that crazy? Does that ring at all true with you? What's your take? Um, I think it rings true to the extent that we now have a much more critical understanding and perhaps realistic understanding of what it's like to be online for all sorts of people who might be minoritized in one way or another, whether that's with regards to gender or race or class. Um, I I would have to look at this. I, so I'm, I do very um, empirically based research. So I always tend to look at these questions through my current research project or a case study, as it were, if you want yes, to call it. Yes. So if we spoke about um, my recent project, which was uh, based on interviews with 30 feminists who were mainly active online, they all identified as women. They were based in Germany and the UK. They were mainly on Instagram at the time. I did the interviews two years ago, so this would have been early 2022. Um, Digital feminism mainly happened on Instagram then in Germany. I think that's still the case in the UK, though I think there's slight migration going on now to TikTok, but, you know, that's always difficult to kind of track. Um, It was a diverse group of activists in terms of race and class background, um, and they all had a focus. I'm just going to give you an overview of the sample, and then I'm going to yes, please do, yeah, so that people know who I kind of talk to. Yeah, Um, they all had an interest because digital activism, feminist activism, is such a wide field. I focused on activists who did feminist activism around care work and labor. So it could have been activism about the um high you know the the worst outcomes um maternity outcomes for black and ethnically marginalized women it could have been activism about raising children who are neurodivergent and doing so in black communities or whatever it is so it was a very wide range of activism in relation to care and care work a lot of them were mothers um and i interviewed them and asked them about their experiences of what it's like to do feminism online <clears throat> And what I found was a mix. So it does give them a platform and an opportunity to raise their voices and be heard and make interventions and connect with other like-minded people. Um, And all these, of course, are new findings. But at the same time, it was also an environment where they had to protect themselves from the hate, as they called it. So harassment. The hate. The hate. That's what they called it. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's quite an expression, um, isn't it? But I have to say they all used the technological affordances of these platforms quite well to create their so-called bubbles. So they just blocked people and Um, So what they actually talked about more in terms of emotionally taxing interactions online were discussions amongst feminists. So some of them absolutely did have, you know, horrific attacks on, you know, when some men's rights activists found out about them and then doxed them. And I mean, but I would say this was the case in two or three out of the 30 interviews I did. Most of the others spoke about... um, um, what it's like to to be in these spaces, have debate with other feminists, yes. and they they mentioned the fear of saying the wrong thing, of getting it wrong. Um, talked about you know what it's like not to quite know where the debate is at the moment. Maybe you missed out on something, you know. Um, and and there being a culture of the the so called perfect. So Akani Kanai, whose work I absolutely love on digital feminism. Um, she's based in Australia and Melbourne. Um, she talked about this in her research, so I'm really building on her work there. 
Um, this idea that you have to get it right and that you have to do it really well when you're online. And that strikes me as something that is very much interconnected with femininity um, and really, I think, needs to be theorized in line with, you know, our understanding of femininities uh, as a performance, of course, you know, not as something that is kind of biologically predetermined, but still where it matters how women are encouraged to please everybody else, to get everything right you know, and that and that can be very pernicious in these online cultures. So my very long answer to your question, sorry, <laughs> is that I think it's a mixed picture, um, but it's definitely not a paradise um, in terms of making yourself heard and seen. Prof, I, I suspect that my question was much longer than your answer, so please don't apologize. Did you notice differences within these women in terms of German-based versus UK-based feminists or other different forms of social identity? Um, so I didn't notice that many difference between the German and UK-based feminists. Um, I have done a few research projects now looking at, you know, different issues in relation to Germany and UK and never found these national differences so to be so prominent. But one important difference I noticed or a way in which difference really came to matter was around class and class inequalities. And interestingly, that hasn't been written about so much, at least not in relation to digital feminism. Yes. Um, so often there's this kind of argument, well, you know, Twitter, well, now X, of course, Instagram, Facebook, um, if people still use that, TikTok are all free to access. So class doesn't matter, right? Yes. Um, but I think that's an overly simplistic account. And I found that class really comes to matter. If you're on Instagram, which most of the activists I spoke to were, you have yeah. to produce content that is visually appealing. That takes some digital skills. You also have to produce text that draws pe people in, that appeals to an audience, that requires some kind of good communication skills, right? So it was interesting mm -hmm. to observe, mm -hmm. for example, that a lot of the activists I spoke to, and especially the ones who had bigger follower numbers, and had backgrounds in journalism or some kind of digital design background or some kind of communications-based work, right? So they were much better placed um, to, to, to communicate online. Mm -hmm. um, um, so this was interesting, this creation of, you know, good content, visually appealing content, and the ways in which class comes into that. Uh, we know that, you know, uh, cultural and creative industries, so the people who might work in these kind of jobs that puts them in a good place to do this kind of activism, that these industries are dominated by middle class workers. And I think this comes through there. <clears throat> of course, you can acquire these skills if you are from a working class background. But then the next layer is also about getting a feel, having this feel for the game, to use this producing term, and um, getting the tone right. You know, having the required cultural capital. And of course, that's much harder to acquire, as we know. Um, so class really came to the fore there quite strongly. Um, also in terms of who could capitalize on their activism. So, you know, some activists um, became quite well known in the digital world. And some of them could take it beyond the digital work that get book contracts or whatever, could talk to politicians. And there was one quite... Um, there was one statement that I remember quite well by a research participant who was working class, white working class, and she talked about the ways she now sat at the table. So she would speak to local politicians about, you know, um, I think in her case, it was uh, issues related to care and care arrangement. It was all during the COVID pandemic. So these issues were really timely at the time. 
And she talked very vividly about the ways in which she still felt like an outsider. So this typical image, you are sitting at the table, but still you are not quite part of it. So to respond to your question, yes, differences. And I felt class differences came quite strongly to the fore in terms of who can accrue value to use, you know, Beverly Skeggs' work by doing this kind of activism. And I found it was really important to highlight that because I feel the dimension of class is quite absent especially if I may say in US-based research on digital activism, there's some research globally that talks about class differences in, you know, digital feminist activism. Simi Dosikon um, has done really interesting research on that in relation to Nigeria. There's interesting research in relation to Me Too in China um, and also in India, but much less work um, in the, in a Western context, specifically the US. Um, and I really think the argument that because it's all free, class isn't a barrier, needs to be challenged and very carefully rethought. Yes, there is this four-letter word, time, which is very important when it comes to women because of the additional responsibilities that women tend to experience as well as occupational, there are familial and friendship ties that take time and of course the additional time that middle class people have because so many of those responsibilities they can pay for someone else to take on yeah Uh, you mentioned that in your research more generally you haven't noticed a great difference between german and uk based respondents or collaborators whatever we should call them is it a different kind of experience for you talking to people for research purposes in German versus in English, or would you describe it as identical? Oh, good question. No, it's definitely a different experience. I um, I So I do interviews in German then, of course, um, and in English. Um, so whichever language the research participant prefers, really. Um, and I find it more difficult to put certain things well in German just because I don't speak it every day anymore. I mean, I speak it with my children, but it's different form of, you know, it's kind of it's, kitchen. You're not saying, tell me about your feminist experience of the internet. Exactly. No, not yet anyways. <laughs> Maybe <in laughs> Give me six, another 10 six or eight years. months, but not right now. <laughs> not right now, exactly. So, um, and yeah, so so it is a different experience, absolutely. And it's yeah. quite interesting to to see how, you know, I mean, people will be able to hear this from my accent. German is my mother tongue as it were. But in terms of academic things, English is very much my first language now. And it's interesting how, you know, it can change. I know people who've managed to keep, you know, at least two languages kind of up to date and can do both academic work and normal, you know, not normal, but non-academic interaction in both languages. I have not been able to keep it up like that. So it's a different experience. Yeah. Um, And I guess one of the reasons perhaps I don't notice so many differences between German and British context in my research is that I'm my overarching interest in across my different project has projects has been in the interplay between wider social cultural currents and trends and subjective experience. So, you know, how is neoliberalism lived out and experienced? And I guess in that sense, then, Of course, neoliberalism takes a different shape in Germany than from the UK, and I'd never make the argument that it doesn't. But in terms of the specific, and you know, and I would explore that in my writing, of course, to contextualize the research well, but in terms of the specific subjective experiences, I think, 
these kind of differences didn't come so strongly to the fore, if that makes sense. So I think that explains why, you know, that hasn't been such a strong feature in my work. I mean, of course, I did explore creative work in London versus Berlin, for example. This was, you know, in Berlin in 2012, 2013. So before it became as expensive as it is now and really was much more of a paradise for casual workers in terms of cheap rents and so on. And there were, of course, differences. Um, but but overall, I would say um, these differences haven't been as pronounced as, say, gender, uh, racial or class differences. And when you mention language, of course, one element here is if we went back the first third of the 20th century, German and Russian were and French were real rivals to English as the languages of science and medicine in yeah. scholarship. And since the Second World War, for all sorts of reasons, including the Cold War and massive U.S. expenditure on ramping up specialist journals, they've really been pushed to the margins and of course, there are languages where things are still produced. There are important journals in German, uh, for instance. Nevertheless, there are lots of words, some of which might have been taken from German, but have become English or English words that have been pushed into the lingua franca of academic expression. Mm, so yes. you're not you're not the only researcher I've spoken to who can really only talk about their work happily in English, even though that's not their first language. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? And I think that is kind of um, exacerbated or reinforced by the fact that English is the lingua franca of research, right? And perhaps even more so, I mean, I don't know, what do you think? But is it also to do with, you know, um, the language of the internet, the dominant language of the internet being English, I imagine, in terms of where it was created and so on? Um, so so especially if you re research digital culture, I think that perhaps becomes even more reinforced. Mm. And of course, now, because so many middle class South Asians speak English, you've got hundreds of millions on the Internet for whom speaking and communicating in English is completely ordinary. It's almost yeah. a, a first language. I mean, you know, it's terminus yeah. with two or three others as one grows up and as more and more Chinese citizens learn English from very early on. One can only see that becoming reinforced. And it's very tragic in the case of Spanish, where in, because there are so many countries where Spanish is the first language compared to Chinese or German or Russian, you know, we're talking yeah. about dozens where it's the first language and other countries where it's hugely important, like the United States, um, the Surveillant powers and energies of universities and governments in Spanish-speaking nations militate against sustaining those journals and in favour of publishing in English. And this is very unfortunate for people who have gone through 40, 50 years of life, say in some cases even of professional life, not having to do that. They can read in English, but no one ever told them I had to write in it. Yeah. yeah. So anyway. A little thing, but I think an interesting one in terms of these these questions. So, the getting back to the the very recent research, did you sense that the experience for these women had changed over time, or were their ages relevant? How long they had been engaged in a form of digital feminism? Um, that's a good question. So I made um, an effort to really talk to a wide age range. 
Mm. Uh, so women um, of different ages. So the majority would have been in their late 30s, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. I'd have to look it up now. Don't quote me on it. <laughs> but yeah, um, I wrote that down in the articles. But um, but there were a couple of research participants who were in their early 60s. Um, mm. Yeah. So, so I wanted to explore their experiences. Interestingly, I mean, they had more life experience in that sense, right? But in terms of their digital journey, it was similar to many of the others in in that it had kind of started with Facebook and then, of course, things migrated. Then there were more. Sorry, let me just turn my email off so that we don't have this thing. All right. Um, so that started out with Facebook, you know, then yes. as they became more politically engaged, a lot of them went to what was Twitter at the time. Then Instagram really took off for them. So that that was quite comparable. And that also applied to those who were in their 30s, right? They would have joined Facebook sometime in their 20s or whenever. So um, so I'm not sure that age was that relevant in this respect, except, of course, that it was uh, rarer for there to be a kind of feminist activist in their in her sixties, right, um, than somebody who's in their thirties or forties. So they they did talk about that, and they also mentioned ageism and you know the ways in which this kind of filters through. Uh, but then again, I it was I think it was two research participants who were of that age, so you know not not big enough for sample as it were to really draw any conclusions. And how did you encounter and select? your participants no i went on instagram i created an account and then i just hung out there a bit myself to see where things were going you know i mm. i followed feminist accounts then in germany and the uk and tried to see where the debate was and then i tried to narrow it down really to so-called care activists um and that was because of the theoretical focus of my work i can talk about that in a bit um and then i started once i felt like i had a reasonably good feeling for where the debate was currently at which of course changes all the time right um i started contacting research participants um um just via direct messages mm. and a lot of the time i didn't hear back immediately if there were very well now known i just land in their spam um, um but sometimes i was lucky and then eventually i got to my 30 respondents yes <laughs> Um, and then also, of course, then snowballing. So, you know, once I'd had a few research participants work through snowballing, sometimes I also emailed if I could find an email address. Because sometimes people who are very uh, busy on Instagram also have websites and so on. So an email then works well if you have a university email account and so on, you know, then people know it's not just some fake um, interview request, as it were. Oh, and I and I shared the link to my website, which also helped to have that, um, you know, so that people could look me up and make sure I, I am who I said I am. <laughs> Going back to what we said earlier about the Internet, you know, and how <laughs> we could theoretically pretend to be someone completely different. Yeah. Sure. And Prof, you just mentioned some of your theoretical endeavors. Could yes. you share those with us, perhaps? Yes. So my theoretical endeavors and the reason I wanted to look at care work uh, was that I was generally interested in the labor that goes into doing activism online, specifically feminist activism. Um, A lot of it, um, and that actually applies to activism more generally, is unpaid, as we know, you know, and I'm not making the argument it should be paid, but it's unpaid labor. It's often very affect laden. It's very feminized in many senses. And I was interested in what does it mean to be engaged in kind of 
activism online and engaged in all these kind of different forms of labor. Um, so Kylie Jarrett's work on uh, the digital housewife was really informative here, um, who, who's really foregrounded, along with other feminist academics, of course, the parallels between reproductive labor and digital labor. And so I thought it would be interesting to focus on activists who do activism around care work, you know, reproductive labor, really, and to talk to them. So I, I did ask them about the parallels, whether they saw any parallels between what they were doing online in the sense that it was often free, you know, sometimes maybe trivialized, um, very affect laden. They were very deep and passionate investments in this work and their care work. So that's why I focused on this particular group of research participants. And going back a little bit, nowadays people speak about something from seven years ago as though it were prehistoric, I've noticed. Uh, I'm constantly being told that was what we thought in the 2010s. And I thought, and I think, fuck it. You know, Freud wasn't around in the 2010s. I think you still want to read him. Yeah. But in any event, going back to 2017 and a really important book that you co edited, Aesthetic Labor, uh, about the idea of beauty politics. I wonder if you could, if, if if you can remember 2017, unlike the people I'm talking about, if you could tell us a little bit about the idea of aesthetic labor, which I think connects to this affective notion and to beauty politics, that would be terrific. Yes, um, it's a good question. It does feel like a long time ago, but the focus, so this is an edited collection that Anna-Sophia Elias, Rosalind Girl and I co-edited. Um, and it's about trying to, uh, you know, theorize beauty culture, especially in and under neoliberalism. Um, it coined, um, it, it develops this notion of um, aesthetic entrepreneurship to, to bring into focus the dimensions of subjectivity, how often engaging in aesthetic beauty practices is, is something that you know, it's deeply gendered. Um, so, but also something that people choose, women choose to do. And I'm you. I know the audience can only hear me, but I'm using inverted commas. As I say, <laughs> you know? So, to foreground this dimension of how power gets inside us, gets inside us as well. You know, no one forces uh, 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 um, a woman to have cosmetic surgery. But of course, what's interesting to explore is how you know, um, the looks that come off that tend to be very similar. You know, it's often about youthfulness, being slender, you know, having big breasts, whatever it is that people go for at the moment. Um, so this was this notion of aesthetic entrepreneurship and also an attention to labor. Yes. So this was uh, drawing on research that uh, Rosalind Gill is, of course, very well known for her research on work in the cultural and creative industries. Um, and I had developed an interest in that too um, from the early 2010s onwards, <laughs> um, looking at cultural work and inequalities in cultural work and specifically looking at the classical music profession. So that was kind of my entry into this. Um, um, yeah, does that make sense? When I, I had a nose job uh, along with various other bits of cosmetic surgery uh, following a major car accident when I was in college. And I didn't realize, but uh, I, about 15 years later, I was walking down the hallway and I had my, in a new job, I had my first encounter with a very renowned feminist 
scholar who said, you've got a number six. <laughs> and this was the nose that had been chosen for me by the plastic surgeon. Oh, wow. wow. I didn't know what she was talking about, though I asked her and she sort of explained it. But I went and looked in a medical textbook about the array of noses. Now, this may have altered in the last 25 years in terms of both fashion and availability. But I've got a six, Prof. In case okay. you're wondering. Yeah, good. Good to know. Yeah. And apparently nose jobs, I think they are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's different reasons in your case, but uh, apparently one of the cosmetic surgeries men go for our nose jobs. I think I remember. I seem to remember. Yes. In yeah. my case, it wasn't. I didn't really I didn't know I was having it. <laughs> but yes, it is yeah. interesting that these things are spreading a bit. And while aesthetic surgery, cosmetic surgery, whatever we call it, remains a, a feminized province in terms of patients if not practitioners and where the money goes more and more men are worried about their physique and the male gaze is being internalized i think uh, quite comprehensively albeit in different and less punitive ways so um labor is definitely one of your major concerns and you've already used the word creative and the word cultural a couple of times i'm still trying to work out what is meant by cultural and creative work? What's the difference? What's the sovereign term? Are they coeval? Coeval with an A? Coeval with an I? What are they? <laughs> I think it really depends on who you'd ask. You know, they're, they're, and I'm sure you're aware of this, and that's why you're asking this question. There have been passionate debates over, you know, should the cultural and creative industries be called creative industries or cultural industries and should it be cultural work, cultural labor, creative labor and so on. To be honest, so I'm aware of these debates. Um, I use them, I tend to talk about the cultural and creative industries just so people know what I mean. Because <laughs> some people, you know, would think of it as the creative industries. Others would prefer the term cultural industries perhaps um, so I use these terms interchangeably. Um, I like the expression cultural work, I think, and cultural workers, drawing on Mark Banks's work um, in that context, amongst many others. Um, but I'm not particularly set on one definition, to be honest. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. That's fine. I'm just interested because so much money, public money, has been dedicated to the idea of creative industries. Yeah as a counter to the idea of the culture industries. And yeah. so I'm always trying to work out how these people got all this money and what they've done with it and whether it did anything. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And I think in that sense, this, you know, this distinction is important because it signals some awareness of the wider policy context, especially in the UK, where, you know, the new Labour government from 1997 onwards very strongly pushed this notion of the creative industries and then also kind of Richard Florida's work, um, you know, quite rather uncritically um, embracing this term and so on. So I think the debate is important, of course, in that context um, to question exactly what you said, you know, this kind of hype around the creative industries, as it were, and what it's done and who it's served and um, all these important questions. I think for my own research, I'm more interested in talking to people who work in the sector <laughs> and, you know, um, and in that sense, I use the term that they will understand well. But, and yeah. relating to that, Prof, one of the, th the areas where 
the ascetic politics of the cruelty of the Conservative Party, matched only by the ascetic politics of the cruelty of the Labour Party in Britain, has seen the derogation, the derision of classical music by contrast with the popular. And we've seen this in the assaults on classical music within the BBC, one of its most important homes and sponsors in in Britain. And classical music, as you've said, is one of the things that you've written about. You've got at least one book about it and lots of articles. Would you tell us, and obviously it's a it's a complex term as well, classical. Yeah, exactly. Very, yeah. very unfortunate in, in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. We can't even if we say orchestral, what does that mean? And yeah. Everyone's been yeah. talking about the Lenny Bernstein film. Yeah. And he's a figure who, like Sir Arthur Sullivan, really problematizes the distinction because he wrote yeah. musical music. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But in any event, um, could you t- give us a bit of context about how classical music, or whatever term we should use, yeah. is, is surviving these days, say in Germany and in Britain, two of its traditional powerhouses and homes, um, perhaps in more in compositional terms in Germany, um, but in performance and recording terms in both countries, how it's coping and what's going on in particular in Britain in terms of the life of a cultural worker who's a violinist, for example? Mm. Good question. So I'm trying to think about the best way to answer it. So let's go back to this term classical music, first yes. of all. So yes, I think it's yes. important to problematize it. Because there's different forms of classical music. There's also classical music in India, really. So really what I, what one could or perhaps should say is Western art music. However, colloquially, it's often referred to as classical music here um, in, in the UK and in Germany. And like I said before, in relation to our you know discussion of the cultural versus creative industries, it's important to use the terms that people use. But so that's to say, I'm not using it uncritically in the sense that I think, oh, there's only this one art form of classical music, right? Western art music, as it were. So I'm aware that it's a contested term in that context um, and that it needs to be contested. Um, Anna Bull and I wrote an, an article together about some about the understanding of classical music as a genre. Um, and the hierarchies that are often involved in demarcating classical music from other genres and the kind of, yeah, the racial hierarchies, gendered hierarchies that are uh, involved in that. So that's just another way of saying it's important to be kind of question this, you know, question and problematize and critique what we mean by classical music. I don't think it means we do away with the term, but I think it means we use it critically, you know, and in an informed way. So that's the first thing about classical music. Second thing is perhaps I should say something about why I've be, I'd become interested in it. So in in 2010, well, 29, and so 2009, 2010, I uh, was employed on a one-year contract at the LSE. Um, had a great title. I was a fellow in contemporary social thought. I love this title. But it was a fixed-term contract for a year, and I got really anxious about, you know, what would come next and so on. So I became really interested in precarious labor, basically. Um, and uh, then I got a job at CMCI at King's, so that's the Department for Culture, Media, and Creative Industries. So I wanted to explore precarious labor in the cultural sector. 
Mm. And then I had to find out which sector am I going to focus on. And then I realized that within sociology, gender studies, other critical cultural studies, basically critical disciplines, as it were, there was very little research on classic music. So there was a lot of research on popular music. Um, And you understand why, if you think about the trajectory, you know, of the Birmingham Center for Contemporary Cultural Studies, you know, the importance of valuing popular culture and all that. So you can kind of understand why there had been this focus. But I was really struck by this fact that there was this culturally quite visible um, and at the time certainly still quite heavily subsidized sector that there was, you know, cultural sector that there was very little empirical and academic research about. Um, specifically in relation to, yeah, what it's like to work as a classical musician, the question you asked earlier, but also inequalities, you know. So that's why I focused on the sector. And, um, yeah, so to answer your question, what is it like to work as a classical musician? Um Again, I have to draw on my research because I want to answer it in a bit more, you know, empirically based way. So I did a a first set of interviews in 2012-2013 with over 60 female musicians, all early career, uh, who were based in London and Berlin at the time. And I was interested in questions about, you know, precarious labor, how do they make a living, um, also inequalities, what is it like to be a woman in the sector, to be um, a black woman in the sector, um, all those kind of things. So looking at racial, um, also class differences, gender differences, and so on. Um, then the different context, of course, I had mentioned this briefly earlier, Berlin versus London. There was a big contrast at the time between the two cities. Arguably, there still is, of course. But, you know, at the time, Berlin was still a mecca for cultural workers because it was so cheap. It was interesting. I did all the interviews with musicians in London in my office at King's because their places were all too small for me to go there and visit them. <laughs> Whereas in, whereas in Berlin, I, I visited the musicians in their homes and in their flats, which at the time were still in Prenzlauer Berg, which I'm sure would now be unaffordable. Um, Prenzlauer Berg and Kreuzberg mostly, some of them were already in Neukölln then. But anyways, that's just an aside. Um, and, uh, and then I did a follow-up study, as it were, in 2019, um, looking specifically, you know, this was post-Me Too, basically, and looking yes. at how... Um, you know, uh, awareness and discussion of inequalities, whether they had changed and if so, in which ways. Talk about that later, maybe. But the working lives of musicians are precarious, you know, probably even more so nowadays, post-pandemic. I, I, um, I'm about to do a project on women um, or mother-parent performers <laughs> to explore how parenting works in that space. Um, um, but, and the reason I say this and part of me would still love to, to interview musicians now about how they'd experienced the, um, COVID-19 pandemic, right? I mean, I know there's some research out there, but, um, uh, cause a lot of them would have lost all their work and income overnight, more or less, yeah. and then had to, um, go, you know, had to teach online on Zoom as it worked to make a living. So yeah, the working lives are precarious. Um, they are shaped by a range of inequalities, um, but they are also shaped by uh, the musicians' love and passion for what they do and the amazing experience of being in the zone and um, it also being experienced as a great privilege to be able to do something so well and do it in a professional context and explore. I think it's important to mention that. 
um, because it is something that is driven by a passion um, and that is important oh, and that does lend itself to exploitation. You know, I'm not saying that that's not related, but I think it's important to highlight both aspects of it as it were. And of course, in the last 50 years in particular, quite apart from the Leonard Bernstein example, Maestro, <clears throat> rock music in particular has been increasingly dependent on implicit subsidies from the classical repertoire. Uh, I'm thinking of someone like Sheila Bromberg, who is the, was the harpist on She's Leaving Home, a song by the Beatles from Sgt. Mm -hmm. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, a song known to two little pussycats who live with you, no doubt. Yeah. And <laughs> she was a, a jobbing harpist, obviously classically trained at public expense yeah. in those days. If you think about full orchestras used regularly by George Martin, their producer from that point on, bands like the Moody Blues, so-called rock operas, you name it. This hard distinction breaks down. And yeah. I would love to see a project that look at, looked at how much public subvention of formal scripted musical training, because one other way of referring to classical music is scripted music, right? Yeah, yeah formally annotated music, how much of that public subvention has, in fact, subsidised the popular? Yeah, yeah, very good question. Also, West End shows. I mean, a lot of musicians in London did get a lot of in, yeah. uh, income from playing on West End shows, West which were good gigs, right? right? I mean, and not necessarily regarded as the most interesting thing professionally, but a regular income for a good chunk of time. Absolutely. And uh, music for cinema, although that yeah. got displaced, of course. Yeah. But if you go back a century, orchestras were crucial to silent cinema around the world, very famous yeah. orchestras in Germany and in the United States. Yeah. And of course, until sampling rock music became fashionable in the 90s, and still to a certain extent, these original scores are important pieces of of survival uh, income for, for folks. So I guess I think it's, it is important to understand the way in which the education in classical music is crucial to popular culture, even yeah. though there are important differences. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, no, I think that makes complete sense. And it calls into question this distinction between classical music and popular culture, which often, like I said earlier, goes hand in hand with the kind of hierarchy, right? Um, yeah, no, I agree. That that would be an interesting project. I mean, I know from the interviews that exactly these kind of clear demarcations don't play out in practice. Yeah, <laughs> they might play out for the few lucky ones. I mean, I, I, um, yeah, I interviewed a couple of people who did have permanent jobs in orchestras. That was in Germany, so there the the national differences do come to the fore in the sense that as a classically trained musician in Germany, you might still be able to get a permanent post in an orchestra, which is different in the UK. There's uh, most orchestras here are really freelance based. Um, <clears throat> so, um, sorry, where was I? Um, well, we, post. We're talking about the experience of work yeah. and how there are important connections between the yeah, popular and exactly, the classical, sorry, exactly. but also about how various cuts in public funding for classical yeah. music have yeah. adversely affected labour conditions yeah. in the exactly. two countries. Yeah. 
Exactly. And where I was going with what I said earlier is that a lot of the musicians, so most of them really worked freelance, had portfolio careers, did a mix of teaching, performing, and the performing then was really in different spaces. So it could have been the Western, could have been theater, um, you know, and the cuts to public funding came came to the fore. Then a lot of them, yeah, taught to make an income, to have a regular mm. income, basically. Yeah. And what about women conductors? Uh, thinking here of Kate Blanchett and her <laughs> recent film, Ah, yeah. Are <laughs> racially and gendered spaces of occupation yeah. conducting yeah. above all, although that applies to particular instruments as well. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps yeah. nowhere clearer than yeah. in conducting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very visible. I mean. There has been more of a cultural conversation about conducting, I think, and Tao would be an example of that, no matter what one thinks about this movie. Um, And of course, there are well-known examples of incredibly successful female conductors, Marion Elsop being one, you know, but yeah, how does it relate to race? Very good question as well. Um, And it is very much a role that is implicitly still associated, I think, with masculinity and whiteness. Um, and yeah, and it, 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 this is a kind of example of, yeah, vertical segregation, I guess, you know, and in that particular profession, um, and then in terms of, uh, horizontal segregation, you have particular instrument groups that are very gendered as you have already alluded to. So brass sections still tend to be quite male dominated, harp, it's very female dominated instrument, flute, Strings, I think, as well, or at least fifty-fifty. I can't remember now. <clears throat> I did. Um, I did collect some quantitative data in twenty. When was it? Twenty fourteen. So there was very little data at the time. That's changed. But believe it or not, back then we didn't know how many women played in British orchestras, what the demographic makeup was of these orchestras in terms of race, for example. Um, so I, I paid uh, PhD students to basically click through all the websites of orchestras, which, you know, is not a solid methodology, as we know, but it was a good starting point. Look at photos and names and infer from that, which, you know, can be problematic, but, um, you know, the racial and gender background of the musicians. And it gave us some numbers and a bit of a feel for the field. Um, the Arts Council England has now done a much more comprehensive study on that. So <laughs> we now have more solid data. But it was important at the time to look who works in these orchestras and also who teaches at conservatoires. We also looked at that and then did a similar um, study for Germany. But just to say that there, um, you know, 10 years ago, there were incredibly, um, <clears throat> yeah, it was a field that was very much marked by gender and race. Um, in terms of who plays what instruments, you know, entire brass sections of orchestras and no single woman. Yeah. Very few yeah. players from a black or minority ethnic background. So it was really important. And it was interesting because then with that quantitative data, suddenly I was invited to speak on the radio. It's interesting to 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 know just because I could provide some numbers, right? And even though I said, you know, we have to treat this with some caution because obviously it's not, you know. Um, uh, but but that was an interesting experience to be able to do that um, and know that it can be much more impactful for better or for worse than saying, oh, I've spoken to a lot of musicians, you know, I've, <laughs> I've done over 60 qualitative in-depth interviews. <laughs> yeah. It's only 10 days since Seiji Osawa died 
And I've been struck by the obits I've read, the obituaries I've read, that focus on how he could be very unpopular with his orchestras, how he could be difficult, all these terms, referring to the fact that he was Japanese, but really saying that maybe his being difficult might relate to difference. Yeah. And not just personal yeah. idiosyncrasy or being demanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, it could be. Yeah, yeah. And the sorts of pressures that come when you are an unusual person in a, in a profession. Or yeah. When you stand out because of what you look like and the family yeah. resemblances that you conjure for co-workers and audiences. Yeah. Uh, Prof. Christine, I've got a couple more questions for you. And then before you, you know, you are free to go, <laughs> I wanted to give you the opportunity to subtract from or add to any of the things that we've talked about. Does that sound okay as a way of proceeding? Yeah, sounds okay. Yeah, uh, good question. Um, I'm slightly embarrassed about the point where I lost my thread, but hey, <laughs> that is what life is about, probably, with uh, three young kids and two kittens, as we talked about earlier, um, which was not on the recording. But yeah, I have three young children and two kittens, so I'm quite busy um, when I'm not working. Things to add. Maybe on the first point in relation to digital feminism, um, I, I do have an interest in neoliberalism. I don't know what your personal stance is on neoliberalism, Toby, whether you find it boring and an overused concept that is far too wide and can't explain anything. And that's absolutely fine. Um, you know, if you or other listeners think that I still think it's um, a, a cultural, political, economic, social force that shapes ourselves. And so I was interested in um I should say in um, in 2015, 16, I wrote an article called "The Psychic Life of Neoliberalism," where I was uh, where I was interested in exploring how neoliberalism is experienced on a subjective level, um, and I keep having this interest. So when I did the interviews with the uh, digital feminists, um, to, um, to call them that. I was interested in how neoliberalism, you know, the neoliberal digital economy basically shaped their experiences of being online. And it did so in various ways, economically, in the sense that a lot of them were aware of the possibility to monetize their activism, whether or not they wanted to do so. It was kind of at their fingertips. This, some of them did it, others were contemplating it. Um, but it was very interesting to see that this was so readily available and that has something to do with the platforms as well that this activism happens on. Um, and neoliberalism also played a role, however, in in um, in the kind of investments that were there. So they were they were very passionately invested in their activist works, um, which at the same time they then also wanted to monetize. So there was an interesting tension there. And it also worked at the level of, um, you know, subjectivity in the sense that they thought, uh, sought to produce an authentic self that was, but that was also self-promoting. So it was very interesting to see how it played out, you know, beyond the more standard kind of, yes, of course, you know, that they do this activism on Instagram and that's part of the neoliberal digital economy. So neoliberalism is somewhere there, but I was really interested in finding out how it plays out. So maybe that's something to add for those who are interested in these questions? Yes, I think that's a wonderful explanation. So my last two questions. The first is this, and you've explained it uh, fairly rigorously already in a way, 
But going back, back, back to your points of origin when you're doing research, how do you start? We know that you do interviews. We know that you pay doctoral students to look at websites. <laughs> we know that you launch yourself into Instagram. But when you're trying to work out, oh, God, what do I have to do now? Or what should I do now? Or how can I do it? How do you approach those issues? That's a great question. I love that question. It's something that bugs me or irritates me or something that I want to know more about. So the digital feminism thing came up already in 2016, you know, and then I ended up doing the research in 2022. So that's just a lesson on how slow academic research can be. Um, But it was because I was invited to speak at a launch of a feminist magazine in a very hip and trendy place in East London. Um, Like, you know, it was it was in a warehouse. And I mean, it was exactly the way you'd imagine such a thing to be. And I was on a panel with other uh, younger women who were also feminist activists. And afterwards, they kind of we networked. But I found the way that all of them went about it reminded me of my self-promoting musicians <laughs> this kind of they followed up with me on email afterwards and and tried to stay in touch and there's nothing bad about that of course but I was struck by the parallels um in terms of the self-promotion promotion the kind of um, work that goes into doing that um and that's really what made me do this research so it's um it, it and there was something I guess there was something that irritated me in that It's unfair to say this, really. I don't want to, and I should say, you know, in my research with the digital feminists, I'm not there to criticize them for wanting to monetize the activism. For example, of course, I completely understand where that needs come, where that comes from, especially with an interest in reproductive and unpaid work, right? So I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. What I'm interested in is, you know, how and why is it being done and how do people make sense of it and so on. Um, but but I was still at the time I was struck by that parallel. So at the moment, I'm interested in disjunctures. And I think my next research project might be on that. The disjuncture between, on the one hand, a lot of public awareness and talk about inequalities and EDI, you know, which is a, a good thing, but also the reality of life online for young women in particular, Andrew Tate, misogyny, hatred, a lot of pressure, thinking of Rosalind Gill's newest book, Perfect, you know, what it's like to be on social media. Um, so this this disjuncture <clears throat> and how that's experienced, that interests me. Or at the same time when, you know, a lot of talk about mental health, which also is a good thing, but that really contrasts with a complete lack of provision of mental health support, you know. So, um, and, and I'm interested in how these disjunctures are experienced and what that does I just sometimes I think it must drive people crazy to be told all the time yes you know it's really important to take care of your mental health but no sorry we can't offer you any support for the next 12 months and it's not just in relation to this context I think there are quite a few contexts that are like that and I'm interested so that's currently that's something that bugs me and what gives me the energy to maybe then do more research on it if that makes sense (laughs) Indeed. Thank you. And to conclude, here's a fantasy. I'm a 25-year-old, keen doctoral student. I make my way to your door. I knock on it. You happen to be there. You've got two kittens and three children in your office. (laughs) And classical music blasting. And (laughs) And I'm trying to get your damn attention. And (laughs) 
my question is to you, how do I become you? How do I become a cultural media feminist professor? What do I have to do, apart from a menagerie of four-legged and two-legged animals? <laughs> um, <laughs> and and small speakers with a big sound. Yeah. <laughs> How do I get there, Prof? Tell me. Um, good question. Um, a dual PhD, read a lot. Um, I had a lovely supervisor um, and lots of great colleagues. I was I had funding. I was very privileged in many ways. I guess I could make the most of my PhD in the sense that, you know, I was I was able to go to all these conferences and talks and seminars, all the stuff I can't cannot do at the moment because I have to be home at six, uh, which is also fine, by the way. I, I always thought I'd resent that, but I don't even resent it so much. Um, but yeah, um, what pains me in your question is that I currently always have to turn PhD students away because oh. um, I have two full time, you know, um, because uh, our university introduced the cap on workload for PhD supervision. So right. and I'm already way above that cap. So I do a lot of PhD supervision in my own time, as it were. And I love having doctoral students. And currently, I always have to say, I'm really sorry, can't take on any more students. So fortunately, if anybody emailed me now, they might get that response, which is really sad. But I appreciate your frankness, and it just shows the way in which surveillance of academic life has intensified uh, yes. in so many places. And <clears throat> the sort of freedom that your advisor would have had in choosing or not to work with you is a thing of the past. As more yeah. and more entirely unproductive administrators who do not have successful scholarly careers and who neither teach nor research, but instead engage in invigilation of other grown-ups has proliferated. This is most marked in Britain, but uh, of the places that I know about where it's endemic, but it's a problem elsewhere as well. Well, Prof, thank you very much. Uh, I always, as I say to many of my guests, I must admit, I always learn a lot from reading your work, but I have gained a lot today from listening to you talk about it and having a chance to question you. So thank you very, very much. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure, Toby. Thank you.